Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin Sayer. I'm watching everybody have sex and I'm like, it's just too hot in here. (laughs) It's just too hot! (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say, did you know that if you go to casper.com slash risk and use our promo code risk, you can save $50 off a purchase of a Casper mattress. Now, I have a Casper mattress, and I am not exaggerating. I'm not saying this because I'm being paid to, even though I am, but it is really true. It is the best mattress I have ever had. The engineers at Casper have spent thousands of hours developing this springy latex and supportive memory foam combination for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. It's breathable, and the mattress industry has forced consumers to paying these crazy high markups. Casper's revolutionizing thing by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms. It's $600 for a twin, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, $950 for a king. It's free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. It's 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it right back up. Made in America and get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. Also, as America celebrates National Small Business Week this week, Stamps.com wants to honor not only its over 600,000 small business customers, Stamps.com also wants to extend an invitation to every small business throughout the nation to help their business succeed by reducing or eliminating wasteful trips to the post office. Stamps.com knows that one of your most valuable resources is time. You can't waste it making constant trips to the post office. That's why Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office 
to your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK. For this special offer, it's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone on the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is beer wolf <laughs> i forget who this is behind me now hold on hold on a goddamn milli ficking second it's bear wait bear Wharf, of course. Oh, shit. Who forgets a name like Bellwharf? The answer is me. All right. So about a minute and 10 seconds into the opening hosting, we've established who you're hearing behind me now. And this is live at the Bell House 2, my friends. This is the second time we're just going to feature most of one of our live shows at the Bell House in Brooklyn, uninterrupted. And we're right back there at the Bell House on May 20th. We're going to do our special, you know, my old sketch comedy group, The State. We're releasing a book, so we're doing a special show kind of in honor of that with Janine Garofalo will be there, Caroline Ray, Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter might be there. Then on June 22nd, we're back at the Bell House with Josh Gondelman, Aparna Nancherla, T.S. Madison. Holy shit. If you're anywhere near Brooklyn on either of those dates, May 20th or June 22nd, come on out. But the evening you're about to hear was really extraordinary. Carla Rhodes, especially at the very end, was so... She she really just made herself so vulnerable and really opened up, really took a risk. And it was just so moving. She rocks. If you don't know Carla... She's at CarlaRhodes.net. But before that, we're going to start the show here with Michaela Bly, a wonderful writer and storyteller and teacher here in New York. You can find her at M-I-C-A-E-L-A-B-L-E-I.com. Here she is now, Michaela Bly at the Risk Show at the Bell House just a few weeks ago with the story we call Grand Illusion. 
in high school, I did not have any boyfriends at all whatsoever. I thought that the way you flirted was to make someone cry in English class. I was like, my move. Um, I, I really wanted a boyfriend. I just knew that none of the guys in my high school were my boyfriend material. And I said that defensively because I knew that I was not their girlfriend material. Um, my favorite thing, though, was I had a lot of guy friends, so men friends who I hung out with all the time. And my favorite thing was that people would think they were my boyfriend. So I'd have a guy I was hanging out with all the time, and one of my friends would go, are you guys going out? And I had to say no, right, because I wasn't going to lie. But I loved the moment between when they asked and when I had to say no, because that was the closest thing I had to being, like, dating. <laughs> I decided that when I got to college, I was going to find the nerdy man of my dreams, right? My high school was in New England high school, a lot of lacrosse, a lot of Dave Matthews band, and I was going to find my, like, sophisticated lover. I don't think I said lover when I was 18. <laughs> that would have been weird. And so first night of freshman year, there's, like, a party at our dorm, and our dorm is a girl's floor, and then a boy's floor, and then a girl's floor, and then a boy's floor, which to me might as well be MTV's The Real World. It's just <laughs> gonna be amazing. And we have like a mixer party, and I see this guy, he's in a knot of people, he's wearing a velvet jacket, and he's got a pompadour, he looks like Elvis, and he's in a knot of people, and he's doing magic for them. And I'm like, that's the one. <laughs> And I go over and um, start watching the magic. It's, it's really good. He's a really good magician. And he's clearly from Texas, and he's doing all these puns, because I guess magicians, you have to do puns um, when you're doing all your patter, you know, your like, monologue. I introduce myself, and we hit it off like instantly. We have so much to say to each other. He's really charming. He's so not like the guys in high school. So they, like I said, lacrosse, Dave Matthews Band. He is really into art history and he loves Morrissey, and he, like I said, is, is clear, is a magician, and he tells me, very modestly, I will say, that he's not just a magician, he had won the Junior Magic Olympics his senior year of high school, and, which is a thing, I did not know that was a real thing, um, but from his mouth, it sounded really good, and, and I found myself looking at his mouth a lot while we were talking, and being like, I'm gonna kiss this guy, and I had never, someone really like I'd had those weird behind the science center kisses but like not like a that's my boyfriend kiss and then he told me he, he, I, I was so interested in the junior magic olympics he was like yeah you know actually I gave a trick to David Copperfield and I said you mean you sold him like do you work for David Copperfield he said no you don't want to sell David Copperfield a trick because then you work for him and you can never perform again I gave it to him. He saw the trick that I did at the Magic Olympics, and he does it in his road show now. And I was like, I just met a rock star. I... <laughs> and we snuck out of the party, and we found a library on the top floor of our dorm and started reading each other books. <laughs> My move was his move, you know? And... There were all these moments when we would have totally kissed, you know, like heads together. And we didn't yet, but I knew we were just sort of waiting to. And we ended up spending basically three straight days together. 
And so I would come back to my room and all of the girls that I was sort of in my freshman dorm with, we would all like chatter about the guys we were meeting and who, what was happening and who are we friends with now and all this stuff. And I was just like, I found him. Like, I love this guy and he loves me. Because everything I said was fascinating to him too. It was like we were recognizing each other in these parts that we didn't know. And he was just as dramatic about that kind of thing as I was. He said things like, it's like we're recognizing each other in the parts we don't know. And I've never met anyone who would say that out loud. And so the fourth night, and this will date me a little bit, but that's fine, because then you can think about how good I look for my age. The fourth, the fourth night, um, there was a, a protest of the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, a candlelight vigil on campus. And so we decided to go, because we supported gay marriage. And we both had candles. It was really romantic. We were kind of snuggled up with each other. And he'd been, yeah. And he'd been so lovely and physical with me, hand on the small of my back. Like, I just, I felt so electric. And so we're so close to each other, and we're holding these candles. And he says, I have to tell you something. And I said, sure. And he's like, I don't think I knew this before, but I think I'm gay. I will tell you guys, by the way, outside the story, one guy heard about Morrissey and the Velvet Jacket and knew what was happening. He just started laughing right away. Some people get it. Some people get the foreshadowing and some people don't. Um, What I should have thought right then and what I should have said was, cool, I respect that and now we're friends and I'll help you figure that out as a friend. What I instead thought in my head was, we're so close This love is so real that he can tell me anything. (laughs) And what I said to him was, I am right here next to you while you figure this out. I'm not going anywhere. And he said, thank you. And so I stayed. Um, We did not have the kiss that I had been anticipating for so long. But we kept hanging out. We took the same Art History 101 class together. We got super close um, in so many ways. I started spending nights in his dorm room. And we would sleep next to each other and remove nothing. um, But we would sleep next to each other. And I have to say, I didn't mind that. I hadn't ever been with anyone who actually did want to take my shirt off. And I will admit to you that at 18, the idea of someone wanting to take my shirt off was quite terrifying. And so he felt like the perfect boyfriend because people did think we were dating because we spent so much time together and I didn't tell them that we weren't. I didn't give them that. And he would go to parties with me and he would have his rubber bands on his wrist and his cards in his pocket and he would do magic. And I got to know his tricks so well that I could do the patter of his magic tricks while he was doing the trick. Like I knew what he needed to say to, to make everything happen. I never understood the tricks, but that's what I knew. And it kept going like this. And he would say things like, I worry that God is punishing me for being gay by sending you to me. Because I love you, but I can't love you. And I was like, that's okay. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And finally, it's parents weekend, which coincidentally was national coming out day which I don't know if they did it on purpose in that way. Um, and he said to me two weeks before that, he said, you know, I am not ready. My parents are very Texan and very traditional and I'm not ready to be out. 
and he was starting to come out to our friends and things like that, I said, do you want to introduce me as your girlfriend? And he said, yeah, that'd be amazing. And so Parents Weekend came, and just to keep it realistic, I also introduced him to my parents as my boyfriend, which I was really proud to do. They had been very worried about me and the fact that I had never dated anyone, and I was really proud to introduce them to this very artistic, very well-spoken professional magician. (laughs) And they liked him a lot, and his mom loved me. She hugged me so hard. (laughs) Real hard. And immediately said, let's talk on the phone every week because we need to start planning his birthday. I know, I know. And I loved that too. I loved the idea that a girlfriend plans the birthday with the mom. Like, that's awesome. And I will admit that I started forgetting that it was pretend. We'd been doing this for a month. We were lying on his dorm bed and we were both reading separate books This was before you could study for an art history final on the internet, so we were studying from a book, which is very archaic. Um, And we were looking at all these cathedrals. His face was just so close to mine, and I was always spending time resisting putting my arms around him. I started leaning over. I think I just had forgotten that it wasn't real. And I started leaning over to kiss him. And he said, Michaela, I love you you know this is pretend, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, obviously. Of course it's pretend. And I got up. I was so embarrassed. And I left the room, I made some excuse, and I went back to the girls' floor. And I didn't go back. I didn't go back for three weeks. And I saw him in the dining hall, but now instead of heading over and putting my finger in his little square cake, you know, the dining hall cake, which was like my new move. (laughs) I just sat somewhere else. And in in the art history lectures, I just sat somewhere else. And finally, we hadn't spoken for quite a while. And I was already thinking, God, if that didn't work, what's gonna work? Like, I have to find someone, but who am I gonna find? Who's gonna be like that? And he knocked on my door and he said, hey, I know we haven't hung out. And I was like, yeah, busy, art history, I don't know. And he said, "Um, I just got to tell you, David Copperfield is coming to town. He's using my trick, so I have two tickets in the second row, and I really want to take you. And we had talked about going. We had talked about how cool that would be to go. And so I said, yeah, I would love to go. By the time David Copperfield happened... I had already started hooking up secretly with a math major. And secretly was not my choice, right? It was, uh, he would call me at 2 a.m., I would go over, he didn't tell anyone that we were hooking up. That's the way college is supposed to be, apparently. But the night of David Copperfield came, and we both got dressed up in velvet. We went to the theater, and there were all these really famous magicians in the front row. We were in the second row, and he introduced me to all these magicians. And he didn't say I was his girlfriend, but he kept his hand on the small of my back. And I was really proud. I was really proud to be with him, and I was also really proud of that hand. And the show starts. It was awesome, because it's David Copperfield. It was the best. Um, David Copperfield wears that billowy white shirt, you know, and his hair. 
And there was this one moment where David Copperfield says, I need a volunteer to come take these scissors and cut this rope. Ash leaned over to me and goes, watch this. The scissors won't come off the table. And this volunteer came up and picked the scissors up off the table. And I heard Ash just go, like, like something had messed up. And David Copperfield looked down at the second row and winked at Ash, like with his headset and everything, winked at Ash and just goes, here's a magic lesson, always have a plan B. And the volunteer tried to open the scissors and they wouldn't open. And I was like, wait, you guys just had a conversation. You really are a rock star. It was so amazing. So it kept not being his trick and it kept not being his trick and then finally, it's the very end of the show and Copperfield comes out in his billowy white shirt but the sleeves are rolled up, you know? And he's got a piece of paper and a pair of scissors. Scissors have been a theme in his show. It's a very high concept. And he um, starts cutting up this paper and um, he says, when I was a kid in New Jersey, you know, I always wanted it to be a snow day. And he cuts up this little piece of paper, but I couldn't make it snow. And he like throws it up and it's just like little paper. And then he goes, but then I became a magician. And he keeps cutting up more paper. And he goes, and I learned how to make it snow. And he flings his hand out and it starts snowing from his hand, like a flurry of real snow. And I look over at Ash and I'm like, this is your trick. And he says, yeah. And Copperfield makes that motion. And then he makes a bigger motion and it starts snowing in the theater and a snowstorm and you can see the flies, you can see there's no snow machine and you can see all the way up to the lights but it is literally blowing snow and snow and it's real snow, we're catching it on our hands and the whole audience is starting to get up, we're acting like 10 year olds, we're like trying to catch it on our tongues and we're laughing and it's crazy and Ash is just sitting there like nodding very pleased like this is working the way it's supposed to and I know it's a trick, I don't know how it's done, but it's so beautiful and it feels so good and I just want it to last a little bit longer. Thank you. since the show started uh, or maybe the lights came up a little bit and I can see more of you um, yeah something Michaela said at the very beginning of her story reminded me of something I haven't thought of in literally 15 years I when I was 31 years old I started dating a beautiful super smart very talented actor a Filipino fella and we were in our fifth week of dating which for me to be five weeks into dating some that's like a Santa and Mrs. Claus length relationship <laughs> at that point for me. And we had just celebrated Thanksgiving dinner and we were in bed together and we had this really amazing emotional sex. And afterwards, you know, I was a bit discombobulated. My head was kind of in the clouds and he kind of put his face right up in mine and gave me a big like Cheshire cat grin and he said, I kind of think I want to say the L word. And 
I, it was one of those things where you're saying it and you're like, no, 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 no. You know, you're like, no, don't be saying that. That's wrong. And I, but I replied, lesbians? (laughs) I think the concept of someone saying I love you was so far from my world that I was like, what, what L word, lesbians? What do they have to do with all this? So he's like, no, we had to take a time out before he could like gather, the, you know, get the moment back. And, uh, and, but that was the first time that uh, someone said I love you to me. And that was like amazing memory uh, after the ridiculousness of me saying lesbians. <laughs> all right, our next storyteller. Uh, oddly enough, we met on OkCupid. Uh, <laughs> and since then, we have been chatting about the storytelling that he does. Uh, he has a show that is coming up. It's a one-man show in Theater Row in, uh, I think it's in October. It's called Eyes Closed, Lips Parted, which I love that title. You can find him at jacobsebastianphillips.com. Please welcome to the stage, Jacob Phillips! Wow, yeah. So guys, you're gonna take my virginity tonight. This is my first time. Thank you. Hopefully it'll be as good for you as it is for me. So if you hear an accent, it's because I'm from Alabama. I grew up in a really small farm town in Alabama. And I really don't have to tell you that Alabama is known for a lot of things, but it's not known for its acceptance of people. It's not. It's not like on the license plate or anything, no. (laughs) So I knew from a pretty young age that I was different. And by different, I mean a a big old homo. (laughs) And I also knew that I needed to suppress that shit down. I knew not to let anyone see it. So I grew up pretty shy and withdrawn. I couldn't make friends to save my life. And I was a mama's baby. So it shocked everyone, including myself, uh, when I decided to move away to college, about three hours away from college. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Fuck yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to do this. So I go. I move into an all-male dorm. (laughs) Wasn't an accident. (laughs) And the first half of the semester, I had zero friends. I couldn't make friends to save my life. And I finally found two super bro-y, super straight, super fratty guys that were like, fuck yeah, pussy and vagina. And I was like, yeah! I want, I want it, too. I want that. So, so much vagina. Um, and so we, we got really, really close over the second half of the semester. And we were driving one day, and they were, I was driving, and uh, one of the guys was in the back seat, and he rose down his window, and we see a guy who's on the color guard, who's obviously very flamboyantly gay, and he takes a Mountain Dew bottle, and chucks it out the window at this guy. 
hits him in the head. Mountain Dew flies everywhere. And I remember sitting there just like this and saying, oh, shit. Like, like that's what they do, right? And I said, that will never be you. You will never be that person. Keep driving. So over the course of the rest of the semester, I, I, I really tried hard to butch it up and be more manly. And we had decided that in the spring that we would move in together in an apartment. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm ready for this. So we go to Spencer's (laughs) to decorate. (laughs) And I get, I remember walking into Spencer's and being like, the people that work here are so fucking edgy. I love it. But... We, I bought this, this poster of Carmen Electra. A poster of Kathy Ireland, I think. And uh, a Superman poster. And I proudly displayed them in my room. So, uh, we lived together. We had fun. We bonded. And then we met this guy who we called Bowie. Because he looked like David Bowie. And he kind of joined our group. It was, a, it was a, a, an ever-expanding group. He was also straight. And... Uh, so, one evening, we're sitting outside smoking. I was a smoker at the time. And I said, listen, I, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm bisexual. Because that's the first step, right? And so he was like, that's great, man. Fuck yeah. And I was like, but if you, if you, you know, like, just don't like tell people because I don't want people to know. And he was like, I will never, uh, uh, zip, never tell anyone. So th- my friends decided there's going to be a party. We're going to throw a party. And I decided, no, actually, I want to go home for the weekend and see my mom and do some laundry. And so, so I do. They throw the party. I get back Sunday and no one's in my apartment which is pretty, pretty rare. I see a guy pass, I stand out, I'm standing outside my apartment smoking and I see a guy pass who I kinda know and he goes, hey, didn't know you were a faggot. And I was like, what was going on? And I feel my hands start to shake. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Then I start to panic because I realize that something's off because never before have I been clockable. And this was, I knew something was up. So I talked to a friend's girlfriend and she had said that that Saturday night that Bowie had stood on top of a glass coffee table, like straddled the edges on the wood part and announced that I was a gay person. I was gay. But he did it in this very like bombastic way of like, Jacob's a fucking faggot, blah, 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 blah. And I remember sitting there and being like, oh, that sucks. But I also knew what was about to happen, like I knew the floodgates were about to happen. So I wait, and I'm calling my two roommates, my two best friends, I'm calling them, I'm texting them, no answer, nothing. Monday rolls around, I go to my classes, I'm all day, I'm nervous, I can't eat. I come home and I see that they have been moving out while I was in class. I was like, oh my God, like my whole life is crashing around 
around me. These are the only people I know. These are my friends, right? One comes in while I'm there, and I was like, what's going on? What's going on? He was like, you're a fucking faggot. We know you're a faggot. Bowie said it. And I was like, I'm not. I'm not gay. If, 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 okay, I am gay. I am gay. But if, if you stay, if you, if you just stay my friend, I won't be gay, I promise. And I'm basically like crying on the ground, like holding him kind of deal as he's like moving his shit out. Basically, uh, they move out. And I begged them, I said, I can't afford the rent. I can't afford the rent. I can't tell my mom what's going on. My mom doesn't know I'm gay, right? So I can't tell her. So the week after they find out was pretty brutal. And I couldn't really focus. I had no idea what was going on. I wasn't eating. I wasn't going to class. I was failing tasks as I was like going and like writing like B for everything and walking out. So I decide that what I was going to do is I was going to go to the movies and I was going to treat myself to a movie. So I go to see Hot Chick <laughs> with Rob Schneider. And I'm kind of on the verge. And I get the popcorn and my big Coke. And I go up to the butter station where you butter it. And I just couldn't stop buttering the fucking popcorn. I'm, then I start crying. And I'm just fucking buttering the popcorn and just fucking going crazy. And I realize I'm fucking losing it. And everyone around me and I'm like, I can't stop the popcorn. <laughs> Just buttering the shit out of this popcorn. <laughs> Losing it. And I go into the movie, I can't eat the damn popcorn. It's suddenly, you know, like, what are you talking about? There's all this. So I go home and I say to myself, you gotta do something about this. So this is Sunday night. I say, you know what you're gonna do? On Friday, you're gonna kill yourself. No. You're gonna kill yourself. You're gonna take this into your own hands. You're gonna do it. And that whole week, I tell you, the whole fucking week was just agony. And it was the first time that I felt like, oh, fuck yeah, I got this. So I went to bed immediately. I was, I was good to go. I woke up Monday morning and I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to spend this week, prepare, and on Friday, I'm going to kill myself. So... You know how they have the campish cash on cards where it's not, you can't like trade it in for cash, but you can go and like buy food. So I was like, I'm going to be fucking generous. So I go to the calf and I just start buying people food. And I said, you want, you, you, who wants, who wants a pancakes? You want pancakes? I get you pancakes. And people are looking at me like, yeah, I want fucking pancakes. So I'm just buying shit like crazy. I'm like, who, what do you want? I get it. I'm like, Oprah. I'm like, and you get a pancake and you get a fucking pancake. What do you want? You want some little box cereal? I got you some little box cereal up in this bitch. And I just feel great. And so I'm like, oh, I'm on a giving spree. So I go home. I take down my posters, my Carmen Electra my Kathy Ireland, my Superman poster, and I get all my DVDs and I go to the quad and I just start handing them out to people. And I'm talking to people in a way that I've never fucking talked to people in my whole life. I've always been super shy, but I was like, hey, how you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? Hey, how's your mom? We don't know you. I don't know you either. It's okay. How's your mom? Right? And people are looking at me like I'm weird, but I've never been fucking freer. So then I decide, okay, okay, I can do this. So Friday rolls around. I go to the Walgreens and I get a 30-count bottle of Unisom, which is a sleeping pill, and a 60-count bottle of Unisom, because uh, that's all they had or I'd gotten more. So it's Friday night, rolls home, I'm in the car, I get home, I say, I'm ready to fucking do this, get a big glass of water, I go into the bathroom, and I take that first 30 
bottle with one shot. And I was, I was like doing a little dance. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm doing this. Fuck yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to do the other one. So I take it, do the, like about half of it. And about halfway through it, I panic because I realize, well, Jacob, you're <laughs> killing yourself. So then I start to cry. And I say, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I picked up the phone. I called my mom. And my mom's like, hey, how you doing, baby? And I'm like, hey, listen, ain't got time for that. I'm killing myself. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I was like, this is what I've done. I've taken a 30-count bottle of, of, of Sudosom, and I've, t- I've taken a, a lot of another one. And she goes, okay, okay, do you have any EpiCac? And I was like, mom, I'm 19 years old. Why the fuck do I have EpiCac? <laughs> And she's like, okay, so what you need to do is you need to go into the kitchen, you need to get some mustard. You're going to put some mustard in water and you're going to drink it. And I was like, sounds great. So then I go into the bathroom and she said, now I want you to plug up the sink and I want you to plug up the bathtub. And I was like, but this sounds perfect. So I chug back the, the mustard and water and she said, now I want you to pull the, pour the second bottle into the sink and I want you to count how many pills are left over. And there was, I can't remember the numbers, but it was about 30 pills left over in the bottle. And she said, okay. So you took 30 and 30, that's 60. So we got to get 60 out of you. Now I want you to start throwing up in the bathtub. And I was like, okay. So as I'm throwing up, she's saying, count the pills back to me. Tell me how many pills are coming up. So it's like a fucking game show. I'm like, 30. And I'm like, 10, mom, 10. And she's like, fuck yeah, 10, baby. Go, 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 go. And I was like, 15, mama. Basically, it gets down to a number. I can't quite remember the number, the, but it wasn't enough. I couldn't, there were still some left. And so she, on the house phone, called the ambulance. The ambulance came and got me. I go to the hospital. She meets me at the hospital. They pump my stomach. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, you know, I'm broken. I'm sobbing. And she goes, what is going on? And so I just couldn't hold it anymore. So I tell her everything. And she said, baby... What? I, why didn't you say something? I said, Mom, you know, I just felt crazy. And she was like, you know what? Sometimes you're not crazy. Everyone around you is an asshole. And I was like, damn right, Mom. Damn right. <laughs> so I spend a week in the hospital because that's what happens when you, kill your, you try to kill yourself. You have to stay there a little bit. <laughs> and I go back to school and... My apartment's empty. I don't have my Carmen Electra po- I don't have anything, right? So I was like, okay, well, this is a good time to kind of start over. So I decided I was going to make my way to the theater department. Because that's where the gay people go. And really, before, I had never seen a gay person like me. Right? I wasn't really flamboyant, but I wasn't like a jock. I was somewhere in between, and the only people on my campus were, you know, really flamboyant gay guys that were running around with like colored hair, and I just didn't respond to that. So I was like, well, there's no place for me in this world. So I go to the theater department, and I'm in the tree because there's a tree out front that people like hang in and they smoke, they smoke cigarettes in. So I was like, well, I'm gonna do this. So I'm smoking in the tree, and this girl Heather comes up to me, and she goes, you like shit. And I was like, I'm sorry? And she's like, you look like shit. And I was like, I, I, I just got out of the hospital. And she's like, oh, for what? <laughs> and I was like, I tried to kill myself. And she's like, I fucking love it. <laughs> How'd you do it? <laughs> and I was like, sleeping pills. <laughs> and she's like, fuck, yes. You should meet my friends. <laughs> so I, I joined the theater department. Now I'm an actor. But I, I go to the therapist, and my therapist says, 
Jacob, like, what did you learn from this? And I was like, well, I was so free that week that I thought I was going to die. And he said, so basically, you should live your life like you're going to kill yourself on Friday. <laughs> but don't. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That reminded me of how, you know, when I was 12 years old, I saw the movie E.T. in theaters, and I think I reacted the way everyone did when they saw E.T. in theaters. That is that I was a sobbing mess throughout the last 20 minutes or so of the movie because I realized at 12 years old that I was head over heels in love with the boy, uh, oh, Elliot, the, the lead boy, and that I was absolutely overwhelmed with consuming jealousy for the brown thing from another planet. So I was so shaken up by this that I decided to tell my best friend, Henry. Now, he wasn't really called Henry. We, we both called each other Henry. We were the Henrys from the day we met in kindergarten. We were like, oh my God, we're such good friends that we have to change our names and christen each other as having the same name. Now we're the Henry Club, but no one else can be in it. So we were the very best of friends, and I basically kind of came out to him in the seventh grade and let him know I had feelings about Elliot from the movie E.T., and... Henry decided he wasn't going to talk to me anymore. He decided we were now enemies. It spread around the school that for some reason, you know, the best of friends were now enemies. And we had all these similar friends, so they had to take sides and all that sort of thing. And then in eighth grade, we found out, both without knowing the other one was going to do it, that we were both running for student council president. We were the only two on the ticket. So... The campaign gets going, it's really rough, we're really both battling it out as this popularity contest, and he starts putting up stickers around the school. You can find them on people's desks, on walls, under desks and stuff, that say, Kevin Allison is a bisexual. <laughs> he was just hedging his bets, you know, uh, just... <laughs> going for, you know, something that would catch it all just in case. And I was, of course, mortified and, and, and didn't know what to do. So I realized that when it came time to give our big speeches, I really, really had to win people over, right? Because I had this terrible smear campaign to deal with. So at the last minute, I came up with this brilliant idea. The phrase cool beans was uh, brand new at that particular year, uh, or at least it was in southwestern Ohio. <laughs> so I, when I got up to give my speech, all I did was led everyone in a rousing uh, rendition. I said, when I say cool, you say beans, cool, beans, cool, beans. They loved it, and I won in a landslide. <laughs> I really didn't have any policy proposals. They just loved that Cool Beans chant. And a few years later, when we were in high school, uh, Henry and I made up and we're very good friends to this day. Okay, I want to bring up our next storyteller. And I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. I've wanted to have him on the show for the longest time, ever since I first saw 
He does a show at Joe's Pub. Really, really, if you haven't seen it, you gotta get to it. It's the meeting of the International Order of Sodomites. <laughs> there are various viral videos that are out there of some of the hilarious bits from the show. It's really remarkable. Uh, the next one is on May 22nd at Joe's Pub. And then on June 6th, they're doing a special Night of, of a Thousand Judies. <laughs> so, so be sure and check that as well. Here he is in his fabulous heels, Mr. Justin Sayer! <laughs> I know, girl. For those of you who, I, I would just, before we begin, this is the kind of homosexual I am day to day. This is not put on for you. I was at a barbecue 15 minutes before I got here. I was. I know it's confusing because from the back, I look like I teach women's studies somewhere. I have a lovely... If you saw me walking down the street, you're like, I bet she has a lovely partner named Janet. And then I turn around and the mystique is blown. I was actually thinking about, I usually wear a brooch, but I couldn't tonight because there were just too many choices. And I thought, I'll just be simple for you all. My story takes place in Italy. Now, I decided after Christmas I was going to go to Italy with two friends, a girl who I thought would be safety in numbers, and my gay friend who I exclusively talk about sex with. Now, let me explain something to you, ladies and gentlemen, because I see a lot of heterosexual faces. <laughs> there is this thing as a gay person, where, especially in your 30s, you kind of go through a second adolescence where you do all the things you were supposed to do at 12, when all those disgusting boys were like blowing snot rockets and scratching themselves, and all us boys were over here being like, you guys are gross. <laughs> Jesus. Clutching imaginary pearls that one day we would be able to afford. <laughs> But something happens when you're in your 30s and you have money to buy those pearls that there are friends where all you do is exclusively talk about disgusting sex you're having with many people. So I thought, this is a, we're going to be the A-team in Italy because I can go shopping with her and go fucking with him. So I tell them right before we get on the plane, I want to do three things in Italy. I want to uh, see the canal that Katherine Hepburn fell into in summertime. <laughs> I warned you early. This is the kind of homosexual I am. I want to see the David, and I want to go and see John Keats's grave in Rome, right? Because I love poetry. And when very drunk, I can quote Keats at parties, which is exactly what everyone's hoping for. <laughs> How many times have you been to a party and you're like, we have dip, we have beer, and God knows there'll be cocaine, but if only, <laughs> if only an aging homosexual would walk in here 
and perform out loud Ode to a Grecian Urn. If only... If only that could happen tonight. So we get to Italy. And I also have this weird mental thing where I imagine that if I travel to other cities, I will become different people when I get there. As if the time travel will turn me into a young Maggie Smith. That does not work. Just a warning. And I got off the plane and I was kind of expecting, really, if I'm honest, I was expecting to be Kate Blanchett in The Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> I was expecting a lot of shawls and I already have the voice. I'm Meredith Logue of the Textile Logues. <laughs> See, now, if you were gay, you would have been peeing yourself, so that's no fun. <laughs> so, we go around and I go to Florence and we see the David and I'm hypnotized by the David. And inappropriately looking, just looking at the penis of the David for 15 solid minutes being like, that was made with such genuine care. I have never seen something so beautifully crafted in my life. And I imagine Michelangelo just chiseling away at balls for years and years. <laughs> It's delightful. <laughs> and then we go to Rome. And we're in Rome and we see the Colosseum and we go to Keats's grave. And because, again, this is the homosexual I am, I'm picking flowers at Keats's grave and crying because he was only 26. And what, what happened? <laughs> and I get out and we leave the cemetery. <laughs> in Rome, and my friends, I said, well, all right, well, what do you want to do now? And he said, well, you know, there's a bathhouse just a few streets over. I was like, did I choose right bringing you? <laughs> so we get a little nosh, and we're going to go to the bathhouse. Now, again, I magically think that because we're doing a location change, I'll be a different person by the time we get to the bathhouse. Someone who likes bathhouses. <laughs> Someone who's very into that kind of sexual scenario. Forgetting 34 years of that never being the case. <laughs> so we go. And I should have known from just getting there. I have about 25 bags. I'm like, is, I, there's a coat in there that I don't want to wrinkle. Can, is there somewhere I can hang it up? The bathhouse guy's like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? I think that was the only phrase he actually said to me in English. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? So we get in and I'm stuffing all my valuables and tchotchkes into this locker. And if you've never been to a bathhouse... It is a labyrinth of sorrow, ladies and gentlemen. It is just many rooms walking around, open doors with men sitting there suggestively with a can of Vaseline by their side. And, and you can't, you're like, I know what's supposed to happen, but who knows how that could play out. You sound like a seventh grade riddle, a man's found dead on the floor. There's a puddle by him. How did he kill himself? <laughs> so I walk through, and first off, they only give you a towel, which I'm not ready for that. The towel's like perfect if I nod it correctly, but that knot's not got a hold. And I don't want to be standing around being like, oh, well, you seem charming, dick. 
So I say to my friend, do you think I could pin this with one of the brooches I have in my bag? And he was like, I, I don't think you should do that. I think that will be a bad decision for you should something happen. And he becomes a different person when we get into the bathhouse because he becomes a gay man in panic. Now, because, again, heterosexual faces, I'm going to explain something to you. When in hypersexual situations, gay men can do one of two things. Either they can turn into a little 12-year-old monster in a Toys R Us commercial and just start running around being like, ah! Someone put something in me! Or, also in the same commercial, they can turn into very delicate little girls who just want to pet babies. Which one do you think I became? And my friend is running around this bathhouse, running, just running, doing laps, looking for dick, looking, searching, combing it out. And it is not the crowd you would expect. It's, a bathhouse is never as sexy as you've read. And it's a lot of 70-year-old men just like... And 70-year-old Italian men which are like, Jesus Christ! Stop already! Don't suck... I mean, I'm proud you have your teeth, but don't suck them at me. And I walk around this bathhouse just being like, what the hell am I doing here? What am I doing here? And I decide that I'm going to take a seat in the sauna. Now, in the sauna, everybody's blowing each other, and God knows why, because it's so fucking hot. (laughs) And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching everybody have sex, and I'm like, it's just too hot in here. (laughs) It's just too hot! So I leave, and by the time I get out of the sauna, the king of the bathhouse has arrived. And what I mean by that is, in any gay social situation, we nominate a king. And he is the most attractive man in the room. And we genuflect wherever he... Oh, sir, excuse me. Please, I'm, I'm sorry about the eye contact. I, I hope you understand. And this man is, I mean, he's gorgeous. He's why you go to Italy. You know. And I'm just, I see him and I'm like, that's great. That's great. But I'm going to get in the whirlpool, or as I've been calling it all day, chlamydia soup. (laughs) So I sit in the whirlpool, and of course, now that I'm like isolated in water, I'm getting very contemplative which is exactly the mindset you want to be in, in a place where you're just supposed to suck dick through holes. And I'm in the the whirlpool, and there's a bust of Antinous, who was the lover of the Emperor Hadrian, and killed himself on the Nile. It's a beautiful story about death. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking to myself, when are you ever going to get to there? When are you ever going to get to the place where you'll realize that you're the same person everywhere. That you're a guy who came to Italy to see a 26-year-old man's grave because you quote him drunkenly in the middle of the night. When are you gonna realize that you're okay? 
But not everything is for you because you're a unique little unicorn in the world. And the bathhouse might not be your jam. That's okay. Not everybody has to go to the bathhouse. And not everybody has to be on Grinder either. Because then I was thinking about like, because really, if you're in a sea of chlamydia, thoughts, ladies and gentlemen, the mind travels because you're being infected in every pore. Oh, it's good to laugh. That was a suggestion. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I'm in here and I'm thinking, you know what? I want to get off these. Because uh, are you all on Tinder and all those things? It's like online gambling and I never win. I always pick it out and be like, oh, here. I oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no arms. Oh, great. All right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but warn a girl. <laughs> And I'm thinking, you know what? I need to change my life in this soup. If I'm going to be a romantic person, I just need to be a romantic person. And the people that I bump into on this life will be the people that I'm supposed to meet. And then I don't need to go to these places. I don't want to go just to satisfy my friends or some kind of arcane idea of what it means to be a sex-positive gay man in my 30s. And as I am sitting there contemplating it, the king of the bathhouse sits down right next to me on the rail. There's a rail in the saunas here, or in the, we're in the pool, but there's a rail so you can sit and jerk each other off. It's very thought, thoughtful. <laughs> it's thoughtful. They're well-designed bathhouses. And he sits down next to me, and my friend, who is racing around still, searching, 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 stops because he knows what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen because I'm thinking about Proust. <laughs> and this gorgeous man begins to jerk me off under the water. And I look over at him. <laughs> I say, thank God he didn't speak English. I said, are you sure? <laughs> are you? All right. And we had sex right in the pool, which I never dreamed I would do. And now my friend who's been racing around is really angry at me because he's come to be king of the bathhouse and he's not getting at me. And I sat there, Sylvia Plath, writing from the bell jar. And who's fucking taking home the king? So we have lovely sex and, and the man offers to give me his number and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm leaving Rome tonight. And I was, I was, in all fairness, I was. But I went home, we went back to Florence that night, and I'm in Florence, and I'm thinking, you know what, I kind of like this. I like this new taking life as it is. Like accepting a certain amount of what you're going to be wherever you are. And we went to Venice the next day, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to delete my grinder, I'm going to keep off of it, I don't need it. Who I'm supposed to meet, I'm supposed to meet. And we're in Venice the next night, and I swear this is the truest story I'm going to tell you tonight. We're in this little boat of a restaurant in Venice, and this gorgeous young man, who's exactly my type. I like men who are so gay, they, it's hard for them to hold pencils. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and then I walk over and say, let me, let me help you, lamb chop. <laughs> Whatever you need. <laughs> and he comes over to our table and he says, has anyone told you about the special tonight? And I said, no, no, <laughs> no. And he says, well, we have this thing at this restaurant where we have a, a wheel of cheese and we dump hot pasta onto the wheel of cheese and it melts it. And then we serve it to you fresh at your table. And I was like, would you like to become an American citizen? <laughs> Just hear me out. <laughs> and we got talking, and for the rest of my time in Venice, we saw each other every day. And I thought, you know what? I'm realizing you have to know where you are and be okay with it. And when you are, rather than looking at your phone and trying to figure out who you're going to be in different places, just look around you, and hopefully some gorgeous man will be serving you pasta that melts a wheel of cheese. <laughs> Thank you, good night. Justin Sayer! Yes, anyone who says, you know, be the kind of gay person you want to be is a hero of mine. There's way too much conformity nowadays. I also, uh, I'm a big, big fan of sex clubs because I'm not very good at conversation in social settings. But then when I get to a sex club, I want to have conversation. So it's very confusing. Like, I'll leave the bar being like, I can't handle all this conversation. Then I'll want to have conversation at the sauna or the sex club, which is very confusing for everyone there because there is that real, oh my God, we're in the dark. It's underground. We're in the unconscious realm now. So... There was a party I used to go to in Queens uh, where I, I kept hooking up with the same exact guy. And, and I felt like, well, this is kind of crazy because, you know, I would pay my $20, find this guy, we'd go and find a little room and then have a great time together. But I, I, was, I just got to the point where I was like, why, are we, why don't we just have a date or something? Why don't we, you know, like get together like normal people? But I didn't realize I was really breaking the code because after, like, we had hooked up, like, for the 10th time, I finally decided to say something, to initiate some conversation. Uh, so I said to him, after we had finished, you know, both having a grand old time, I said, you know what, could I have your phone number? And he looked like a deer caught in the headlights, you know, like, what wait, a question is coming at me here in this secret underground underworld? And he finally just blurted out, um, it's in Spanish. <laughs> and that was that. I was like, oh, okay, okay, gotcha. That. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, my friend with a Spanish phone number. <laughs> I'd be perfectly happy to see him again, though, if I ever went back to that club. Now, our, our next storyteller, 
This is, oh my goodness, it's been such an honor working on this story with her. She has gone through a really rough time just looking back at this particular era of her life. We've been working on it for, I don't know, the past month or so. She's never told a personal story on stage, especially one like this before. So be super, super, super open-hearted and supported. And I've told her, you know, if she loses it a little bit, no worries. You know, we're all here to show as much love and support as we can. She is a brilliant performer herself. Uh, she uh, is a ventriloquist, and in the very first days of Risk, we saw each other performing at Arlene's Grocery when we were brand new uh, there in the uh, East Village. She has a web series she's working on called The Plight of Cecil. Please welcome to the stage Carla Rose! <laughs> Um, this is really the the hardest thing whew, I've ever done. That's why I have a Shirley Temple with me. Uh, I normally do comedy and ventriloquism, and I don't know why I'm crying already. Um, thanks. Thanks. Um, So this was very hard for me. And what I really hope by sharing this story is that it helps me find some justice and that uh, helps me find some peace and to help others as well. Um, this is probably going to be a little bit more red or I'll lose it. <laughs> so I'll try to connect with you guys as much as I can. Everyone I've ever dated has basically been a dummy, except my fiance who's here. Um, <laughs> He's only a dummy about, like, 90% of the time. <laughs> and one of the most life-changing moments of my life was meeting the best dummy I've ever known. This little guy named Cecil Sinclair completely changed my life. He does and says whatever I want to do and only occasionally gives me the black eye. He's, uh, he's a perfect man, right? So let's go back to 1991. I'm uh, nine years old, and I was rushing home after school to see my favorite television show in the world, Lamb Chops Play Along. <laughs> it wasn't everybody's favorite. And I had to get to the basement first, or my brother would grab the remote control from me and change the channel and not let me watch Lamb Chops Play Along because that's what brothers do, right? And months prior, I had seen this show for the first time, and I'd really fallen head over heels with Sherry Lewis, which wasn't weird at all, I guess, right? And I decided I wanted to be just like her. I already had the red curly hair, and that was that. And I decided I wanted to become a ventriloquist, because why not? That's like the coolest thing in the world to do. And... When I was a child, I felt very alone. I didn't have many friends. I came from a divorced, broken family, lots of trauma, lots of abuse. And I decided through ventriloquism, I could create my own cohorts who would say and do anything in the world I wanted. You know, I could make my own friends this way. Surely, looking back, I can see that ventriloquism didn't help me make actual friends. <laughs> 
but I could make up unlimited friends. Stuff was really, really rough at home, and I had my own little lamb chop puppet, and she would whisper to me when I went to sleep, I love you, Carla, I love you so much. Sometimes I would cry, and she'd say, it's okay, everything's gonna be okay. We're best friends, I'm your lamb chop puppet. It's okay that you're talking to yourself. Every day, I would absolutely dread the bus ride to school. I would take my lamb chop puppet with me on the bus, so I was kind of setting myself up for this, but she was my best friend. Kids would yell at me, freak, dog face, weirdo. It would really hurt my feelings. My brother wasn't nice to me either. I was feeling really alone, but I had my little puppet to stick up for me. I know you are, but what am I? So the preteen years were hard and it eased up, but my ventriloquism hobby led to paid shows, shows for other classes. And I started to get paid gigs and perform at the local comedy club. And this was exciting. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm becoming a ventriloquist. Maybe I could really do this. Um, And I heard around this time, I'm probably about 11 years old, that there was a ventriloquist convention about two hours from my house. I couldn't believe this. I was like, oh my God, all the ventriloquists together and all their puppets hanging out. It's a whole convention of ventriloquists like two hours from my house. Holy cow. I was like, I can meet other weirdos who talk to themselves just like me. Luckily, my mom took me to the convention, and this led of a slew of new friends, a lot of them who were older men that talked to dolls. <laughs> so, not such a good idea, but looking back, I can see that I was basically trapped in a Christopher Guest movie. <laughs> the things we learn when we're older. So I kept getting older, I had fun at that convention, and when I became a teenager, this annual convention near my home, a small town, moved to Las Vegas because the original yearly convention shut down, maybe like a dummy went on a rampage, I don't even know why it shut down. But this English guy in Las Vegas decided, hey, I'll take over the convention and we'll do it in Las Vegas. And he had a magic and movie museum and full of ventriloquist memorabilia. And I begged my parents to take me. Luckily, they love to gamble and I love ventriloquism. So we went. And they basically just let me go on the Las Vegas Strip. I'm 15 years old at this time, and I'm really precocious. And so they're letting me attend this all by myself, because why would they be interested in what their teenager is doing? You know, I can run around in Las Vegas, whatever, okay, no. And um, they're out gambling, having fun. And so the guy that put the convention together, like I said, had this museum on the Strip, and he's an almost 60-year-old Englishman. And he kind of looked like Eric Idle, and he was more show busy. So he gave everything, ventriloquism, a much more attractive face. You know, got some media mentions, and it was great. And so I went to the convention for a few days, and I was really excited to meet this guy because I was a budding teenager and head over heels with anything from England. My room at the time in the mid-1990s was plastered with Beatles and Rolling Stones posters, David Bowie, anything English I was, like, game for. And so I approached him, and I thanked him for putting the convention together and sheepishly asked him if we could be pen pals. 
for a small town girl, this was really exciting because you have to see there's this man that gathered all the ventriloquists in the world in the showbiz city, Las Vegas. He responded, You're so pretty and talented. And I noticed he was beginning to flirt with me. So I flirted back. Your accent's so cool. I mean, I thought this was exciting. Like, nobody liked me at home. I was a weirdo. Here's this guy running this big, super cool ventriloquist convention. And he, he continued to say little things to me like, you could be the future of ventriloquism. And so one thing I'm leaving out is that I was sexually abused growing up. And so I, I, I had no boundaries, basically. And my soul was dying for someone to notice how special I was and to save me from the small-town existence, capture my heart, and help me get into showbiz. And here he was, an exotic Englishman with the power to put together an entire convention of ventriloquists. So the convention wound down, and I had a great time. And I went to his museum. I knew he would be there in between lectures to thank him once again and get his book signed. He had written this amazing book on the history of ventriloquism, and me being a fangirl, had to get it signed. And I had a weird feeling in my gut, and I had planned on telling him, hey, you know, I'm really glad our flirting didn't go any further. And I don't know why at the time that I felt like sharing this with him, but now I can see that, you know, I was trying in my own teenage way, like I said, I was 15, to set some boundaries. And I didn't have any because I had been formally abused. Before I could get my words out, he pushed me against his office wall and started passionately kissing me. This guy is almost 60 years old, you guys. I'd never been kissed. The boys at home weren't interested in a weirdo like me. So I was really confused. Was what was happening right or wrong? I was too young to know and I was too damaged to protect myself. I was a 15-year-old alone with an almost 60-year-old predator who surely knew better. And it was basically too late for me. My boundaries had been totally infiltrated. The vulture had seen his prey, and I was being pulled into his talons, ready to be ripped apart and consumed by his inappropriate actions. So I go back home, and he offers to become my mentor. That's the next step, right? He called me daily and got closer and closer. And he began to ask me really personal questions. Conversations turned into sex and love. Who was my favorite ventriloquist? Sherry Lewis, of course. What did I look like in my Catholic school uniform? And could he have a picture of that? What were my show business goals? Had I ever had an orgasm? Did I know that I looked like a Vargas pinup? Yes, of course I did. Did I have a boyfriend? Are you guys okay? Okay. He started sending me things in the mail, one being that I can remember it was a VHS tape full of ventriloquists that he really admired, and he wanted me to learn about them. He'd then call me and tell me to fast forward through these tapes, and at the end there would be really weird sexual scenes, from S&M stuff to women having candle wax dripped all over them. He said that he'd like to do these things to me, and this is normal, this is how adults express love to one another. Now look, I really didn't know what to think, and it's been hard for me growing older. I'm 34 years old now, and this whole situation has really messed me up. But, you know, 
I knew it was wrong, but I, it felt really special. I had been formally abused. Nobody liked me. It makes sense now why this happened. He was a fancy man from a glitzy city wanting to talk to little old me to encourage me as a budding ventriloquist. He thought I was special and beautiful. No one had ever said that to me in my whole entire life. It's obvious now as a 34-year-old woman that all of his actions were predatory grooming. He was pulling me into his lair, all under the guise of a mentor. He was helping me with my career. I was fooled. He was successful and could guide me. He had also said, like I said, that he loved me, and I felt no one else did at the time. This felt good. It filled a role that I had never found at home, and it was easier for him to get closer and closer to me. What was left of my boundaries were destroyed until I had absolutely no boundaries at all. It was too late. One thing led to another, and he convinced me he wanted to be my first, and he continued to groom me. I went along with this, and I thought this was love and a normal relationship. There were parts of it that were very, very exciting for me. I mean, being at the height of puberty didn't help. Think about back when you're a teenager. Everything feels great. Add in a rough childhood, and it's a recipe for all of this. And besides, I was in really too deep to escape. I mean, think about it. I was thinking at the time, what would my parents say? What would happen to my budding career? What would happen to my heart? It was really too much for a 15-year-old to handle. He let me know that he wanted to be my first, which is very hard for me to say out loud. And the ventriloquist convention was the following year where all this crazy... It's, you guys thought band camp was crazy. <laughs> right? So we met at the following year's ventriloquist convention. And I turned 16 and I was full of life and curiosity. And he was ready for me. He invited me to come to his magic and movie museum. And when I arrived, I was shocked to find out he actually lived in a spare room in the museum, which is absolutely disgusting. He had a mattress on the floor and a utility sink to shower in. Perfect boyfriend. I noticed liquor bottles strewn about, and I felt pity for him, especially since I found out that he wore a toupee. Teenage me was shocked, but I was in too deep. He'd set up this whole planned scenario and took my virginity, claiming he must have me every way because he wanted to be my first. I was traumatized and couldn't believe this was happening, completely disassociated from the moment. I wanted to get away, but I had no idea how to stop it. He told me this was normal and loving. He claimed it was much better than losing it to a high school boy in the back of a car who would never talk to me again. Following this encounter for years, I would visit him on school breaks. He'd help me book gigs and act as a mentor. This was our cover to be together. I'm basically brainwashed at this point, pulled into this predator's lair. This is how it happens. <laughs> My whole world was mixed up and turned upside down. And sex had turned into weird scenarios that were worse than I could ever imagine. He had me call him his master, and now I could see I was in his clutches, brainwashed, fulfilling an old pervert's fantasies. To make matters worse, he was an alcoholic, and one night he got very, very drunk. We started to argue. He told me that I was too old, at the age of 16, to be into rock and roll, that I really needed to grow up. He told me that my weight, I was about 30 pounds thinner than now, that I really needed to get in shape if I wanted to make it in showbiz, or it would be a lifelong struggle. Look at this lifelong struggle that I have on me. Thank you. 
He told me it was selfish and childish, and he was right about one thing. I was a child. I knew in my gut the scenario had to end, and I told him that I was leaving. I'll never forget him saying, where are you going to go, little girl? You're all alone in Las Vegas. Are you going to call your parents? And he was right. I was completely, utterly stuck. Upon returning home when I was 18, I finally decided to escape once and for all when I tried to kill myself. I was almost ready to graduate high school and head to college, but I didn't care. I couldn't live with the secret eating me up inside anymore. I had no way to escape. What would my parents and family think? Looking back, there were so many cries for help that were ignored by every adult around me, and I decided this is the only way out. At the hospital, I told the doctors I was stressed about going to college. So I wasn't committed to the hospital, once again getting absolutely no help from anyone around me. At this point, I finally told my parents. They were really angry and felt that I had betrayed them. They knew my history of being abused by my stepfather when I was a child, and it was too much for them to handle. I finally severed ties with my mentor after that and went off limping and confused to college. In 2004, after graduating college in Tennessee, I moved permanently to New York City as soon as I could. I had my own six-floor walk-up and an illegal East Village sublet with a bathtub in the kitchen, toilet in the closet. It was so cool. I was opening for punk bands downtown when downtown still existed, and I quickly got known as the rock and roll ventriloquist. Thank you. There is some good to this story. My ventriloquist dreams were still moving along at this point. My deep, dark secret continued to eat me up inside like all secrets do. To this day, my confidence is still damaged beyond repair. I was involved with a lot of super bad relationships with men, and I basically drowned myself in alcohol. And I'm in my early 20s at this point. And time ticked by. At this point, I'm in my mid-20s, and I decided it was high time to confront some demons. Like any good New Yorker, I got a therapist because New York made me develop crushing anxiety. And she was really good, and I started to feel stronger. And I really wanted to confront this secret that had basically stolen away my teenage years and just really screwed me up. The Las Vegas convention was long gone at this point, but I found out it was going to be at the original ventriloquist convention, which had since started up again. So I made a plan, and I was going to make my return to this convention as a hardened New Yorker and tell this motherfucker what I thought of him. Thank you. I was no longer a wimpy teen. I wanted to knock him out, maybe cut his balls off and make him eat them for dinner. Yes. I know I didn't care if I went to jail at all. I just really wanted some justice. I wanted revenge for the girl that couldn't fight back at the time. And so I was really hoping that it could help me move on. And my therapist would be on standby if I needed support. And I was more terrified than I'd ever been in my life, except for tonight. <laughs> and I couldn't believe I was going through with it. So thank you, darling. I arrived at the convention terrified with my stomach in knots, and I scoured the hallways, and I see my mentor, and I immediately ran into the bathroom and had a panic attack. And I didn't know what to do, so I finally came out and entered the ventriloquist dealer's room. 
So this is where the ventriloquist hang out in between the ventriloquist lectures and talk shop and buy puppets and talk about <laughs> ventriloquism. So once again, I'm in a Christopher unproduced Christopher Guest movie that I guess I'll star in, <laughs> except showered with the fear and stench of irreparable damage. In this room, you can buy puppets and countless other items. So I went over to my favorite table to check out the goods and calm down. And this guy had a really great table, lots of vintage stuff. And I glanced down at my feet and I saw this giant red ear sticking out from underneath this table. And I said to the dealer, I said, whoa, what's that giant red ear attached to you? And he said, oh, Jesus Christ, that's, uh, that's this really horrible ventriloquist dummy that's been on the table, and I had so many requests to put it away that I finally did because it was really scaring people, and it's really terrible, and you don't want to see it. It's just going to stay under the table. So, of course, they said, can I, can I please see it? And he said, come on, it's, like, awful. You really don't want to see it. I begged and begged, and finally he pulled it out. Okay. And he pulled it out. And this puppet was who is now known as my partner, Cecil Sinclair. Then named Mr. Higginbottoms. I thought it was perfect. It was like love at first sight, if you can fall in love with a puppet. And the dealer was like, you can't be serious. But I looked at Cecil's cracked face. It looked like he had rosacea. He had black line leather eyes. He had a leather mouth and he had this really matte crepe wig. I mean, he looked like a wreck. I loved it. And he was made in the 1920s and he just looked like he was drunk and, and just got off of a steamboat from vaudeville or whatever the hell was going on. And I'd always wanted an English ventriloquism dummy since I had started ventriloquism, but they were really, really hard to find. And when you found them, they were way too expensive. So I tried out Mr. Higginbottoms, who is now Cecil Sinclair, and his mouth part broke in my hand. And I told the dealer, I said, I think I just broke Mr. Higginbottoms. He's like, oh, that's okay, because it's like evil and satanic and no one wants it. It's probably like trying to kill you, so just like give it back. I said, how much is it? And he stated an amount that was way too much because, like I said, I lived in the East Village in New York and I had no money. And so it was basically like, oh, man, that sucks. And he put him back under the table. And so I left the dealer's room and I see my former mentor once again in the hallway and my heart is in my throat. And I felt like a scared, terrified little girl. And I went up to him and I said, hello. And I said, I really need to talk to you. This, this is an emergency. And he listened to me, and he met me in the parking lot 30 minutes later, like old school style. This is really awesome. I cornered him against a wall in the parking lot and let loose. He was terrified. I was a grown-up woman now, and I towered over him. I was just screaming things like, I'm a grown woman. You can't do anything to me now. And how dare you? I could kill you. I could put you behind bars forever. How could you do that to me? I was a vulnerable child. I was a teenager. What is wrong with you? You were 60 years old. He started to shrink and look like a pathetic old man. He was wearing a toupee that looked worse than Mr. Higginbottom's wig. <laughs> I pray to God for forgiveness every day, he said. 
Bullshit. I continued to rant and rave and wish my older brothers had taught me how to throw a punch or at least break a nose or at least rip some balls off and make him swallow them and then shit them out and then eat them again and then cut his dick off. I said many things like, what you did to me wasn't okay. It was really fucking fucked up. And I have to walk through my life knowing that I lost my virginity in the back of a ventriloquist museum to a 60-year-old pedophile. Really, think about that. It's really bad. He began to shake and cry. I felt slightly vindicated. He then grasped his heart and whispered, Oh God, my heart. I think I'm going to have a heart attack. Uh, uh, I'm a pedophile and I'm dying. Because I can't molest you anymore. I went back inside and went to my hotel room and basically had a nervous breakdown. And I took a deep breath and marched back downstairs. And I saw him in the hallway talking to his wife. You know, when we didn't work out, when he realized that you really shouldn't have a relationship with a teenager, he found someone more age-appropriate. She apparently had heard what happened, and she glared at me and told me that I was a liar and that I knew what I had done at the time. Because, you know, teenagers are, are grown up and they, they really know what they're doing. Watch a teenager on the subway. It's, like, ridiculous. <laughs> they're children. And I thought to myself, at least I'm not married to a pedophile who rapes teenagers. I then marched back into the dealer's room and, without thinking, drained my bank account and purchased Mr. Higginbottoms, who is now Cecil Sinclair. He had to have a new name. I decided not to stay the night, even though I'd only gotten there this morning. I put my new puppet in the front seat of the car, and I said, your name is now Cecil Sinclair. Nice to meet you. He glared at me silently. We rode off into the sunset onto a long and winding road. My life had just changed. Years have gone by since the confrontation. I've continued with therapy, and I'm hitting three years sober. Thank you. Confronting him was one of the biggest changes in my life to date. And telling the story tonight is one of the biggest changes going public with it. I want justice, but there is no justice because there's an archaic statute of limitations law. So I may never find it. What I hope by telling the story is that survivors in the future can have a better fate. The only thing I can do is tell my story and hope others can gain strength from my pain. Know that you can have horrible things happen to you. Still come to New York, still live your ventriloquist dreams, or if you want to be a mime or a ribbon dancer, (laughs) you can find a man that loves you and put a ring on it and deal with all your messed upness and, and still love you every day. And you can be so confident that you can wear a silk shirt with derby horses all over it. And look like Shirley Temple and not give a fuck. Thank you.
Wow. This is Courtney Barnett behind me now. That is all for this week's episode, folks. We just heard from Carla Rhodes. Like I said, you can find her at C-A-R-L-A-R-H-O-D-E-S dot net. Definitely check her out. The work that Carla does with Cecil Sinclair is amazing. And congratulations to Carla for finally getting that off her chest. Beautifully done. And now I shall read a list of places Risk is happening next. On May 15th, 2016, we are in Boston, Massachusetts. On May 20th, we're back at the Bell House. That's that big state-themed show with various members of the state and other celebrities. On May 21st, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Come on out, Minneapolis. On May 21st, we are also at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles. On June 17th, we're in Philadelphia. On June 18th, we're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. June 18th is the day we make our big move to the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On the 22nd of June, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And on the 25th of June, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. We are still taking pitches for that one, St. Louis. You can pitch us at riskyashow.com slash submissions. The theme is worried. On July 8th, we're in San Francisco. The theme is resonant. Still taking pitches for that one also. Actually, the same goes for that June 17th Philadelphia show as well. The theme is disgusted for that one. So pitch us, folks. Risk-show.com slash submissions. You know, you can find the tables of contents for every episode with links for the performers and the bands at the listen pages at wristshow.com. You can find our shop there. You can buy old episodes from our first couple of years there. You can also find the support us page there. We took one hell of a hit during tax season this year, so we're kind of hurting folks. If you love what we do, please go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com and uh, help us out a little bit here. We really appreciate it. And don't forget our school is at thestorystudio.org. I'm telling you, if you download those video courses that we teach on storytelling, you can take them in your own time, and they're super, super helpful and informative. Folks... Today's the day. Take a risk. Kevin Allison, this is... Burm, burm, burm. 
I'm Kevin Allison. This is I'm Kevin Allison. This is Wait. Uh,